Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Calling sanctions against his unprovoked and illegal invasion of Ukraine a declaration of war, Vladimir Putin is continuing his ferocious attack on Europe's second largest country with increasingly indiscriminate rocket barrages against civilian population centers and shooting civilians trying to flee. Russia is using precision whether to target civilians or destroying the world's only Antonov-225, the six-engine cargo plane that was the largest aircraft ever built. Although Russia faces unprecedented economic hardship, world markets are roiling as well. Sanctions are fracturing the Russian elite with the country's second largest energy company, Luhoil, denouncing the war and calling for an immediate end to hostilities. Although COVID infection rates are falling dramatically, some pockets remain as the pandemic has killed at least 958,000 Americans and more than 6 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in Washington, D.C. And we've got the band uh, not just back together, but back together in their natural places, Chatham, New Jersey, London, as well as Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Good to be back home and on the show, Vago. Thanks. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage and sponsored our recent coverage at the Air Warfare Symposium uh, in sunny Orlando, Florida. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, and check out our two uh, weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervillo, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things uh, space on a weekly basis. Ron, how did the group perform uh, this week? I mean, obviously a turbulent week on world markets, investors uh, sort of flailing around uh, a little bit, commercial uh, aviation was down, which uh, you know, in, in your notes you made clear was, was a little bit perplexing given Russia's sort of irrelevance to the global aviation market. Talk to us about how the group performed and why commercial aviation got hammered so badly. Yeah, so a a, a lot of things moving this week, obviously, right? So um, investors are thinking about, well, what's the Fed's next move? Well, the Fed told us uh, the next meeting, they're going to raise 25 basis points. So we kind of know that. Um, what's going on with the broader economy? We got a jobs report that was actually really good. So, you know, the, the economy in the U.S. is doing well. So that kind of throws fire on the Fed thing. Uh, but then worries about inflation got worse because we've seen energy prices um, rise very meaningfully uh, on the heels of everything that's going on in Eastern Europe. WTI crude on average is about $115 a barrel. Uh, and just to remind everybody, I mean, you know, at the worst in the pandemic, remember they were paying people to take WTI away, right? So we've seen very volatile energy markets, but you know, oil now well over $100 a barrel. Um, and uh, if you look at natural gas in Europe uh, on February 15th, it was about $70, $70 for a forward contract. Uh, and now uh, natural gas forward contracts are over $200. Right. So globally, we're seeing you know, energy inflation. You know, and how's that all roll into the markets? Um, U.S. defense stocks this week um, performed you know, quite well. 
uh, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, uh, you know, Northrop Grumman was up 15%, L3 Harris was up 15%, Lockheed Martin was up around 12%. Uh, but then when you look at some of the commercial names, Boeing was down 10%, Aircap was down 24%, Air Lease, another lessor was down almost 20%. Uh, and then, you know, and I'll let Sash talk about this, but, you know, Monday morning, you know, Hensolt opens up uh, over 100%, almost, <laughs> right? It's crazy. You know, Hensolt went from 12 to 26 euros in two days. Um, so just tons well, of well, volatility. Ha- but, having your prime, having your primary customer say you're going to increase defense spending by 100 billion euros might have had a little bit something to no, do no, with just, that. But, and I know that my, Sash but, has uh, a lot more on that. Yes, yes. There's a lot more to say on that. I'm going to leave that to Sash. But my point is, there's just a lot of volatility, volatilities in, in the markets. To the question that you asked, and I still kind of scratch my head, when you look at you know, yeah, Russia as a, an economy in terms of GDP, just be very simple about it. Um, and you know, it's, it's roughly the size of Spain. Um, but I was kind of looking through numbers. It's New York State's got a bigger economy than Russia. Um, so it just kind of mental math. It's kind of like, all right, well, you know, if they're about somewhere you know, called about b- between one and a half to two percent in that, I call it 1.7, 1.8% of global GDP and air traffic markets are kind of proportional to your GDP. Um, I don't know. It's less than 2% of global air traffic. If you just assume it went to zero, could world air traffic markets absorb that? They, they could. And of course, there's it's more complicated than that. And there might be a traffic flows in and out and cargo and things like that. And, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's sort of like a mental experiment. If you just imagine New York State, just we stopped flying to and from New York State. Could the global you know, air economy absorb that? I think it could, you know. Um, so it just makes me scratch my head a little bit over why there was such a big freak out in commercial. Now I get it with the lessors because you've got, uh, you know, several hundred, probably, you know, there's estimates, but maybe it's like 400 or so um, airplanes that are not owned by Russian airlines in Russia of those um, about 5% of like air caps books, maybe a little more than 5%, a little less than air leases book is in Russia. And then the question becomes, what happens to those airplanes? Are they recoverable? You know, will they get expropriated by the state? And what's the insurance coverage? What's the, the, you know, you know, the, 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 what's the recovery going to be on those airplanes? But even in those cases, if you assume those airplanes just go to zero um, and you look at the impact that could have on book equity, it's probably no more than 12%, maybe 15% tops. And those stocks got hammered. So you know, there's some other dynamic going on. And maybe it's just a repricing of risk of putting these assets into emerging markets, specifically emerging markets that might be um, uh, less than friendly to the US and its allies. And maybe that becomes the bigger problem when you think about what that means about putting airplanes into China. Um, so we'll see, I don't know, but um, y- you know, could you argue that maybe there was an overreaction in commercial? Yeah, probably. Sash, uh... Want to get your take uh, on the week, obviously, how markets uh, performed. A little bit of uh, color on uh, what Ron uh, had to say, both on the defense and on the commercial uh, side of things, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of aftershock, and we can talk a little bit greater detail uh, on uh, the Germany uh, announcement. Well, I mean, Olaf Scholz pretty much stunned his own coalition uh, by announcing uh, not just a massive uh, sort of a one-time 
uh, infusion of, of cash, but also then uh, saying that Germany would achieve the 2% GDP, which you wisely last week noted, uh, is, is a tectonic shift that may actually encourage a lot of other company, uh, countries uh, to follow, uh, follow suit. Give us, give us your sense uh, on developments as you saw them over the course of the week, how markets uh, responded, uh, responded to them. And I have a, a commercial aviation follow because your colleague, Nick Cunningham, also did an interesting route assessment on the impact of shutting Russian airspace down, right? Finnair, SAS, Lufthansa uh, get affected. The Asian carriers get affected, right? Singapore uh, could get affected. Um, you know, Japan, Korean Air, you know, sort of give us your sense on, on, on all of these themes and maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into each of them as the conversation goes on. Start us off. Yes. Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, actually, I'm going to start on that last point first, because I think, you know, I, I don't disagree with anything that Ron said, but I think that it's geography that is the missing link in why this is bad for civil aerospace. And it's actually bad for long haul. It's bad for wide bodies. Um, if you are a long haul carrier and you're trying to get from Europe to Asia, you have spent the last, you know, three, four decades, five decades flying over Russia. Russian airspace is shut. And if you are that European long-haul carrier, Finnair, SAS, Lufthansa, to an extent, you know, British Airways, Air France, KLM. But if you are a long-haul carrier, your business model for your long-haul business to Asia is just in bits. And, you know, similarly, if you're an Asian carrier that was flying, uh, so, you know, Japan Airlines, ANA, Korean, that was flying polar routes um, uh, to Europe or uh, to the US, your business model is absolutely suffered by this. Shutting Russian airspace has just created a real problem. So our feeling is that the, the wide body recession, the, the long haul airline recession just got a couple of years longer, um, certainly until this whole, this whole Gulf situation is over and then some, because um, you know, people, people like Finnair, SAS, and actually you know, any, of the, any of the Asian carriers coming to Europe, they cannot operate when they have to fly another three, four hours. They've got to go and find some fuel from somewhere. And so they're taking ludicrously long uh, routings to go um, south around Russian airspace. I think that's the reason why civil airspace, uh, civil aerospace stocks had such a lousy end to the week. I mean, civil aerospace stocks on Friday in Europe were down typically five percent, and in some cases near uh, near a ten. Uh, really, took, you know, um, they've given up everything that they gained in the last uh, last quarter, quarter and a half or so, um, because it's a uh, it's a very very different uh, market for them now, and it's the, it's the airlines that are that are dragging them down at the moment. Um, the defence stocks, yeah, it's been a, an astonishing week for defence stocks. Why? You're, first, you're absolutely right. Germany goes out, spends 100 billion, but more importantly says 2% of GDP is now the floor, not the ceiling. And historically, it's the ceiling that was so far away that they couldn't even reach up to it. Now, that's the floor. And I think that is the, that's the trend for every single significant nation in Europe now. So the uplift in European defence spending this is where, in a, um, you know, absent regime collapse in Russia, and no point trying to forecast that because we've got no way of doing that. But absolute regime regime uh, change in in Russia, we've probably got a decade long rearmament cycle, and our feeling is that the extra spending involved is probably of the order of two hundred billion. Um, it, it's going to be a really bad decade to be a taxpayer in Europe, but. Um, you know, we will at least be a, a bit safer. There's been some fantastic commentary in, for example, the Financial Times, pointing out just how good Europeans have had it in the last three decades. Europeans have been able to cut defence spending, spend it all on social programmes, and feel very, very happy, safe, and comfy. This, this is payback time, unfortunately. Um, 
so defence stocks are generally up. Actually, a lot of them gave up a, a bit of uh, the gains on, on Friday, but uh, that's only to be expected. Our analysis suggests that European defence stocks in particular have been chronically un, uh, uh, undervalued compared to US stocks, partly because the US market has been more favourable, but also partly because European defence stocks have been held back by ESG investment concerns, environmental, social governance concerns. There's been a, a, uh, a broad theme that defence is, so, is, is socially harmful. And this has actually been put forward by the European Commission of all people. Well, they, they're just having to eat those words. And the ESG investors have been carried out on this. I'm personally utterly delighted. I think it was morally corrupt to have that particular line. But because that, that is now unwinding, defence stocks are, are going up. And in our view, they've probably got further to go. The fallacy of all of this is nobody wanted to pay more immediately. Deterrence is about paying more in order not to pay exponentially more later. Had we averted war in Ukraine, this would have been a lot cheaper. We didn't want to do it. And now it's going to be a whole lot more expensive and a whole lot more dangerous to dislodge or stop Putin. Had we managed yep. to keep him from going in there, this would have been a lot easier. That would have meant deploying troops to borders. That would have meant inconvenience. It would have meant reducing reliance on Russian gas, right? We didn't do anything. And hopefully all of these things now align uh, in, in such a way as to uh, ne never again be dependent on Russian gas, right? Uh, um, abs absolutely uh, fascinating. R Richard, let me uh, bring you into the conversation. Um, a lot of commercial uh, developments, as we've been discussing, a lot of aviation uh, developments. Um, you know, Russia is discussing nationalizing Boeing and Airbus in Russia. Uh, the White House is discussing a, a clever and some would argue a little bit of an overdue idea to equip Eastern European nations with American jets, allowing them to transfer their frontline Russian equipment to the Ukrainians. Uh, Poland was among the countries to say, hey, Ukraine will donate you airplanes. The Ukrainians rejected them, uh, rejected those aircraft because they said, look, we need stuff that's ready out of the box uh, to operate. We don't need anything that needs rework or just doesn't have the capability. The Poles uh, said, look, we need our frontline jets you know, in the event something, you know, in the event we get pulled into this. So everybody sort of understood that. Uh, obviously, Poland is an F-16 operator and it's an F-35 operator. They're supposed to get their uh, jets in 2024. Walk us through some of the interesting headlines from your perspective over, over the last week and what uh, uh, Ron and, and Sash also had to say. Yeah, yes, indeed. So much to discuss. Um, I think in terms of commercial aviation, I'm, I'm more on Sash's side. I think I understand um, the well, pain and anguish associated with commercial aviation. Uh, you know, first of all, yes, it is the routes, but it's also the relationship between the longer routes and higher fuel prices. You know, I mean, carrying more fuel to go further, having to stop for fuel, that matters a lot when fuel is 115 a barrel, as Ron says. And that, that definitely takes a, a, a chunk out of, well, earnings on those routes. Also, you already had a natural reluctance to fly internationally that was uh, just tampening down the commercial recovery in the in international markets post-COVID or hopefully post-COVID. This is going to make it that much worse. Uh, you know, my colleague Jonas Murphy over at Aerodynamic put it all into a great machine and came up with actually a number that was closer to 5% uh, in terms of revenue passenger kilometer damage associated with this, uh, everything from direct to indirect to semi-direct courtesy of reroutings and whatever else and international tension. I tend to think it's a pretty good number. Um, and 
you look at the implications, well, a lot of it is international. Almost all of it is international. And that was already the most fragile part of the market. All of it, of course, is wide bodies. Again, a very fragile market space, sort of the epicenter of aerospace manufacturing pain, really, for the past two years. So I understand that most of all, you know, it's not just the risk of uh, nationalization of the Airbus and Boeing jets. It's also the risk of the Cape Town Convention, which was one of those great enabling mechanisms for jetliner financing. The absolute right of reposition in signatory countries. Russia is a signatory country, a country which uh, might be proven to mean exactly nothing. What does that mean for the future risk premium? It also means that Russia will be a scorched earth zone for financing eh, pretty much anything civil aerospace for many years, perhaps decades to come. The risk premium is going to be enormous. So all of this, I think, has additional ramifications that impact commercial aviation. And oh, on top of that, there's one more thing. The EU, in its wisdom, said that lessors have a month to repossess jets. They might not be able to do it in that time, even if you have... Um, even if you have a Russian government that's compliant, which is very unlikely, if, if, if there were enough repo teams and there aren't, you know, they'd go there and, of course, they'd find their way blocked by some guys named Sergei and Igor in a trench coat. That's not good. Uh, but even then, the EU, for some reason, said, by the way, insurance now over. These are not insured assets. <laughs> no one really knows how that's going to play out, but it could be that not only are you looking at three or 400 jets that can't be gotten back to their owners with, again, additional backsplash to future finance prospects in this and other risky markets, but you also have the prospect that it's not merely damage or delayed or a lease holiday, but this is simply something that isn't insured. You lose these assets, period, the full thing. So I understand some of the risk here. There's just an awful lot at play, more than just the miserable Russian aviation market. It's, it's so much more than that. Uh, on the defense side, yeah, boy, I think we're, my number one thesis, which I think we all share, is that we're sort of digesting the implications of a complete sea change in defense. And if you look at aerospace as a universe, boy, one side just got a little bit weaker and one side just got a whole lot stronger. And uh, it's, it's hard to identify winners and losers at this point. You know, the big questions include how quickly can this cash be spent? You know, it's, it's pretty clear that whatever is spent won't have a meaningful impact on the duration of this crisis. It's all about, you know, what happens next. Um, another big question is, well, how much of this will favor hot production lines as opposed to new programs? Um, and it's pretty clear that if you're an active production line, you're probably in better shape. Uh, another is to what extent will this be spent locally in Europe or will they have to look at export markets just be, because the, the sheer bandwidth uh, of, you know, of European defense companies just isn't there. You know, hence Ron's point about Hensel. Yeah, there aren't that many players in the German defense market that you that can absorb this massive increase in spending. So some of it's going to have to go abroad. I think there's a whole bunch of implications here uh, to this massive increase in defense. And I agree completely with Sash. You're looking at a decade-long rearmament cycle at the very least. Um, uh, Ron, uh, let me bring this back to you, right? I mean, last week we were talking about a prospect of an $800 billion uh, defense budget. Um, uh, Adam uh, Smith, uh, the highly respected Democrat from Washington who chairs the House Armed Services Committee, is, is talking about well north of that number. 
uh, being necessary and necessary to send a deterrent signal, but also to help accelerate uh, U.S. Uh, capabilities, right? I mean, there is there is a sense deterrence, conventional deterrence clearly failed, even though Ukraine, in, in my view, is we have an obligation to help Ukraine because uh, they gave up their nuclear weapons under a security guarantee from the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, and other powers, Russia among them, and, and they were violated. There was all sorts of ways for us to deal with this. Uh, we could have deployed troops to Ukraine at the request of the Ukrainian government, and I don't believe Vladimir Putin would have would have tried to do anything. Then we could have moved forces on the border and kept them from doing something stupid in Kaliningrad or the Baltics or anywhere else. We chose not to do that. Now we've got to sort of pay the price, pay the emotional agony, the displacement of 1.5 million Ukrainians at the very least already, uh, and and everything else. Um, you know, where 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 do you think we end up? What's the consensus sense on where the U.S. budget ends up, and and how the U.S. budget is shaped because i've got to tell you something ukrainians are making great use of everything from you know i mean what's a bayraktar bayraktar is a general atomics nat uh circa three decades ago when the when the american company was born right yeah so a couple a couple thoughts on on that bago and just uh, let me just kind of circle back quickly on the commercial thing i think richard's points and sasha's points are great and, and i think one one way to frame it and just thinking about it from a market perspective it, it, if, if the Russian market itself is sort of, you know, this little aviation market, what else is being priced in? And I agree 100% on the broader risk framework around the Cape Town Treaty and what that could mean in other markets. That's, that, that's potentially a very big deal. Um, on the U.S. defense budget, um, yeah, for sure. And I don't think there's a, a consensus yet on the street. Um, you have to understand on on defense stocks coming into this year, right? Post the election, uh, the expectation was we were gonna see declines in defense. The defense group was largely under-owned because investors were looking at reopening plays, which defense was not part of. Yeah, interestingly enough, commercial aerospace was. Um, this was commercial aerospace's year. This was the comeback year. Um, so you saw some rotation into that. That's turned everything on its face, and I would argue that you know defense is still underowned. It was underowned into the year. It's still underowned, and I don't think you know the the consensus numbers on the street have sort of figured it out yet. So yeah, north of eight hundred billion, yeah, maybe it seems it could be you know at least eight hundred billion, and and then the bigger question is when you step out to 2024, 2025, by twenty 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 five, excuse me, by twenty twenty five are we at 900 billion or north of that? Which it seems to me that could be a possibility. So we're, we're back into that kind of environment, I think. And then the next question becomes, what does it do to the earnings profile and the cash flow profile for the defense stock? So it's a complete sea change in how the investment community is looking at, at defense and thinking about defense valuations and budgets. But I would say just as sort of a penciling in a, a trajectory, maybe somewhere north of 800 billion for 2023, and then you're somewhere between eight and 900, and then you're at 900 by 2025 or in that neighborhood. That, that's how I'm thinking about the U.S. defense budget trajectory. 
And a quick word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain uh, command and control. Um, I, I wanna just ask um, an aviation uh, question. Um, if you look at, right there, we have been telling ourselves in full disclosure, you know, I mean, everybody knows that General Atomic sponsors our, our, our product. I'm not asking this question on behalf of General Atomics, but if you look at, there's a sense that there was no role for the Predator or Reaper class aircraft in a high intensity uh, conflict. And yet the single most effective tool the Ukrainians were using are by Rokhtars, um to ravage uh, Russian armored convoys. I mean, there are, the Ukrainians have reported 11,000 Russian soldiers uh, may have died. Um, that means that many, many more are likely wounded. Uh, Stinger missiles are taking their toll on Russian aviation. Indeed, Ukrainian jets continue to fly, even though there are uh, examples of Ukrainian aircraft being shot down as well by Russian air defenses. Um, Sash, give us your military analysis hat, uh, right? Because there are those who are arguing that, you know, the best way to take out this armor is just send, a, send four A-10s in there. It appears that for a lot less money and a lot less risk, literally 30-year-old Nats, right, which is which is the father of the predator line, which in turn is the father of the reaper and everything else that's that's come from there, are, are being pretty effective, right? What, what does this tell us about how it is we need to think about what even a high intensity battlefield looks like? I think that there is some evidence, and I, I, I think you've got to be really careful about not getting over-optimistic about things, but I think there is some evidence that the Russians are fighting this astonishingly badly. In particular, in the north, they are physically bogged in by exactly the sort of weather you'd expect in March in the Ukraine, which is mud, which is why they can't go off roads, which is why that column is uh, absolutely stuck north of Kiev and hence a very, very uh, attractive target. Um, and also shockingly bad vehicle maintenance, uh, which means that stuff just breaks down, runs out of fuel, uh, you know, batteries run down and so forth. Actually, I think that, I mean, you know, I'm afraid much though I want the Ukrainians to do really well, I would discount, I would probably halve or more than half every, you know, everybody's claim of casualties on the other side. Um, but the, the Bayraktar TB2, um, yeah, it's a 30-year-old, is it a 30-year-old Zan, whatever. Um, the important thing about that drone, and I know this from very, you know, experience of somebody very close to me who I trust uh, in Libya, is that it is so cheap, you can afford to lose it every time you fly. Um, it's not like a predator. It's not like a reaper. And actually, I think the problem for predator and reaper and the various high-end Western drones um, is that these things fly up at a level where they are very, very attractive targets for uh, Russian air defences. You know, if you look at how the um, the air battle is layered at the moment, Ukrainian aircraft don't go high. They don't go high because at that stage they are vulnerable to Russian century-type. Uh, um, missile systems, S-100, S-200, S-300, S-400. You fly over probably 5,000 feet and you're a Ukrainian pilot, you will lose your aircraft. And that is where we would normally, we would normally expect to deploy a Predator or a Reaper at 17,000 feet. That's where they spent their entire lives in Iraq and, and Afghanistan flying. And they're big enough, they can be targeted. Um, Bayraktar TB2 flies about 5,000 feet, probably just below the, um, uh, the main, you know, what passes for a Russian air, air defense envelope. Uh, or certainly missile air defense envelope, and doing very well there. But even if they do get shot down, 
the Turks can produce those things fast and cheap because they're not trying to be sophisticated. I think that's the really interesting lesson here. And remember, that's how uh, you know the the Azerbaijani Armenian um, uh, situation um, uh, war uh, was the result. It was because these were cheap enough drones that, if necessary, they could even become killer drones on on their own. Uh, I think that the other, you know, I'd go back to the you know, point we were starting to develop last week. What is working for the Ukrainians in terms of reinforcements is stuff that they can absorb, stuff that they can use now. I don't, you know, unless the United States Air Force actually wants to get involved in this war, or the United States wants to get, and bring the A-10s with them, in which case they'll be incredibly welcome, they will probably do very well. But other than that, we should stop this dreaming. Ukrainians cannot be trained up on A-10s inside six months, a year, probably a year, however good a pilot they are, to go from a MiG-29 or a Sukhoi-27 to an A-10, that conversion program is immense. Uh, so what they need are more MiG-29s, uh, probably, so, you know, Sukhois, if, uh, if you can get hold of them. They need Russian stuff, so they need book, the biggest uh, holder of stored book air defense systems in Europe is Finland at the moment. And then they need really simple uh, anti-armor and uh, low-level anti-aircraft weapons. That's why Stinger works so well. That's why Javelin works pretty well. That's why Enlaw works so well. Enlaw, any one of us on this podcast, frankly, any of our listeners on this podcast could learn how to fire that and use it well in about an hour and a half, two hours. There's no lower training uh, burden for uh, you know, the value of the, of the kill you get from it. And it's not a terribly expensive um, missile either. Uh, I think that's the, sort of, that's the sort of key issue. But my worry at a higher level is the weather is on the Ukrainian side in the north of the country. It certainly isn't in the south. One of the reasons why the Russians are making such inroads in the south is that it's a desert. It's dry. It's, you know, good conditions for armor. Um, and I think that means that they will continue to uh to advance and they're much harder to stop in the south of the country um but we're also uh seeing uh the russians use uh their munitions i mean I, I, there's a sense that they're calling an indiscriminate it may be indiscriminate by design but the russians are targeting apartment blocks where they can um exact the most casualties um there have been repeated efforts at uh humanitarian corridors uh, the minute civilians start moving, the Russians target them, whether with mortars or uh, sniper fire or, or indeed indiscriminate machine fire, uh, right? So, I mean, we know, um, I, I would suggest to anybody listening to this podcast, right, that there needs, that, thankfully, a lot of this, we can triangulate to what units are doing what things where. So when it comes to war crimes, we should be able to put together uh, and make clear to everybody that, you know, you may think you're getting away with this now. This isn't an accidental issue where civilians may have been caught in a crossfire or accidentally targeted. Uh, and certainly, uh, we, we all know that in Iraq and Afghanistan and unfortunately campaigns around the world, tragic mistakes have been made. But, but, but the, the United States and its allies have not deliberately targeted civilians in the manner the blatant manner in which uh, they are they are being targeted in this particular instance, um, Richard. Let me let me bring you in on how you think this affects the complexion of investment. And Sash, I completely agree with you in terms of the relative cost uh, of the two weapon systems. Right, Nat Predator Reaper. On the other hand, the United States has vast arsenal. You know, a vast fleet of predators. And my sense is that they can be used somehow in the inventory in order to be able to support a layered. Uh, ability to project force. 
in in a way that maybe we're not considering. I mean, again, if you got them, figure out ways to use them. And this is giving you kind of examples of how it is you might be able to use these and get away from this, oh, well, if we only had more A10s, because the A10 is a complicated and potentially dangerous way of, of doing it, despite its its great attributes and, and in fact designed for this uh, circumstance, although they are they are a weapon system that are vulnerable, right? Go, go ahead, uh, Richard, sort of give us, give us your take on how you think this sort of shapes investment and how it should shape investment, because let's bring the F-35 into this discussion. Um, you know, you're one of the people who thinks that the rate uh, dramatically needs to increase, um, you know, even if the current rate is predicated on bringing airplanes into service that are of the highest current standard that the United States Air Force and other customers in the United States want. T take it in any direction you want to take it. Yeah, I think there are a couple of issues, Vago. You know, first and foremost, you've got this um, weird high-low mix going on that you you, you describe, you know, with with uh, with relatively low-end UAVs being extremely useful in the battlefield. But this is largely a function of incompetence on the Russian part. I mean, they haven't deployed the full brunt of their air capabilities, and what they have deployed, they've used in a relatively lackluster way. That might change. Uh, it might change in the event of a, con a broader conflict. It might change because they well completely change how they do things or suddenly get smart, or it, 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 might, it might endure. We don't know. But making investment decisions on the idea that the, uh, the enemy is going to be not very good, that's, that's probably not wise. And that's why I think most people will still err on the side of high-end systems that are most relevant. Uh, and that's why you're seeing you know, such great interest in high-end combat aircraft like the F-35, like Rafale. I have no doubt that some of Germany's spending will go to the additional batch of Eurofighters they've been working on, both Quadringa and the one after that, I believe. Um, in other words, you, you, when you don't know what the future is going to bring you, prepare for that high-end conflict. Um, now, as for the F-35, it is sort of fascinating. You know, back in September, they capped the output at 100, 156. That was before, you know, Finland joined. That was before the German announcement. It was before, well, we still don't know about the status of the UAE. And on top of that, even back then, 156 wasn't adequate. We're not talking about right now. We're not talking about next year. We're talking about, they said, for the foreseeable future. So it's 2025. Poland wants theirs and everyone else can't bring them in quickly enough. And you're capped at 156 when market demand would clearly ne necessitate over 180, perhaps 200. There's got to be some leadership here, either at the corporate level or at the JPO level or some, somebody to say, all right, here's what we have to do in the next two years to get output to that rate. Is it bringing the aircraft to a higher standard? Is it a cost thing? I don't know what it is, but leadership would be welcome because I, frank, I think, frankly, given the importance to the U.S. aerospace industry in terms of uh, people, who, well, not, not just the subcontractors, but people who build weapons, people who, of course, provide special mission aircraft that interface with this asset, there's an awful lot riding on this. And otherwise, people will start saying, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe a Rafael will do just as well. We can get it quicker. And of course, it's not by accident. This week, Desso said, yeah, we're going to three per month. Um, and I'm sure there are rate studies for higher in the event they get higher numbers too. So the other thing about combat aircraft is not only are you preparing for the most robust threat in the event the Russians do get their act together, but you're also buying a strategic relationship. Uh, it's always been that way in the combat aircraft market. 
in terms of training, in terms of diplomacy, in terms of industrial uh, arrangements, whatever else. You know, Poland figured this out years ago, which is why they started to punch above their weight by ordering 32 F-35s. And you're going to see more of that moving forward because once again, the U.S. has proven itself to be the indispensable country. NATO has proven itself to be extremely relevant, and it's all about strategic relationships. Ron, is there anything you want to add in terms of how you think this shapes uh, overall spending within that, you know, 800, you know, let, let, let's just say 813, 820, 810? You know, yeah, I number. mean, it, it, it's a, that's a question that's come up um, uh, some with investors and and maybe you know, kind of in simple terms, the way I think about it, it's going to come in waves, right? So, you know, the first wave is the uh, boots, beans, bullets, stuff you need right now. Uh, maybe, you know, handheld radios, command and control, uh, munitions, land systems, that sort of thing. And then maybe you have a second wave that's a push towards uh, higher rates on F-35, uh, everything kind of Richard talked about. And then maybe even a later wave that starts asking things like, okay, are we getting enough Virginia-class submarines? Oh, or maybe we're going to, you know, the AUKUS thing, maybe that ends up being a Virginia-class submarine or something related to it. Uh, is, is, you know, 12 Columbia-class enough? Uh, are we getting enough bomber, you know, more strategic um, focus? So that, that, that's how I'm thinking about it. Um, the next natural question, too, is if we see the budget, um, you know, go to that eight, plus hundred level, wherever, you know, 800 plus million billion level, um, you know, when do we start to see that flow through to the defense contractors and, and, and how that changes their top line profile? And, you know, my sense is, right, maybe you see um, in some of the service providers, something much shorter term, right? The folks that are playing in cyber, uh, maybe, you know, the very short term, you see some um, surge there, uh, but then it's really as you roll into you know, calendar 2020, you know, late 2022 into 2023, you start to see it flow through the rest of the industry. But, but that's kind of in maybe kind of a high level how I'm thinking about it. Uh, and and uh, very uh, quickly, we've got about 90 uh, seconds uh, left. Uh, Sash, does um, Germany do SCAF and buy F-35s or does it, because with $100 billion, you might be able to reward your French ally while at the same time rewarding your American partner. Germany can certainly do. They, they can afford to do both because it's only 100 billion of capital. Remember, the defense budget also goes up by nearly a quarter every single year. Don't get too fixated on the 100 billion. That's just the near-term spending uh, pot. The issue will be actually whether France wants them or not. And Dassault's comments on their uh, results this week about how difficult it was to sign a deal on SCAF uh, with Germany were incredibly intransigent. Re I mean, real, uh, you know, fetch popcorn stuff. So, so effectively, whether or not Germany wants to be part of it, France may not want Germany to be part of it, ultimately. Uh, Dassault certainly doesn't want uh, uh, Airbus Defence of Space to be part of it on the terms right. currently being asked for. Uh, indeed. And, and that's something that uh, Dassault has always made clear. Look, put, it, put us actually in charge. Let us be in charge and we will have a good airplane. Uh, as Eric Trappier has always reminded, right, designed by committee tends to end up and uh, end badly. Um, Richard, uh, give you a, a last word on this and uh, epitaph of uh, Miria uh, and, you know, what it means. I mean, anybody who's ever seen the airplane fly literally thought it was one of the most incredible things they'd ever seen. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, a, a testament to the barbarity of the Russians to destroy it uh, ultimately. 
Yeah, indeed. And, it, you know, it seems a little strange to be talking about, you know, the, the horror of it all when, of course, actual people are dying under savage, savage conditions of war. But it, yeah, it does sort of provide a book. And I remember my first air show, Farnborough, in 1990, and they brought this. You, you might have been there, too. And you could actually walk around inside it. And somehow it was a symbol of openness, post-Cold War walls coming down, international cooperation, maybe the world was getting to be a better place. So having the Russians deliberately target and destroy that, for me, kind of provides, well, the end of a three-decade dream. And uh, on, on, on SCAF, does Germany do both? Does France force them out? What's, what's your betting on that? Yeah, if I were, I, I agree completely with Sash. You know, the only thing that would keep me from saying that, yes, the French are going to want to go their own way to have total control over export decisions is that maybe we're looking at a new Germany now that doesn't regard exports or defense in general as something unpleasant that got dragged on the back of their shoe. Uh, but I think given everything that's happened over the last five, 10 years, the French are going to say, gee, we'd be so much happier to go it alone. We have the budget to go it alone. We have the export market standing to go it alone. Thank you, Germany, but your services are no longer needed on this program. Uh, that's it for the week, guys. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, have a great week. Look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Enjoyed it as usual, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.